Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. It's good to be with all of you. Um, this morning, I welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, um, it's a real joy to be uh, bringing the word to all of you. I think in the midst of this uh, crisis, um, sometimes we're more ready to listen. And, uh, so, and it's, it's encouraging to see the response, uh, the ways that you all are truly seeking to embrace and to equip yourselves with God's Word. But this morning, I want to I tackle another psalm with you. This is Psalm 88, Psalm 88. And if you, just, if you look back to the, the liturgy that we have before you, you'll, you'll see the, in the summons of the Word from, that was taken from Proverbs 4, uh, words that speak of um, wisdom and the need for wisdom and in the sense of exhortation to get wisdom. And I think that that summons is, is actually especially appropriate uh, for this morning, for the psalm. Um, wisdom is knowing how the world works. It's the sense of understanding, of being wise, of, of being aware of how life, how people, etc., operate. Being wise is the opposite of being simple, of being young, of being naive. Wisdom is this ability to understand ourselves, who I really am. Not, 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 not the person who I, who, whom I tell people I am on, on Instagram or on Facebook. It's understanding, it's being in touch with myself. It's being in touch with others. Understanding who people really are beyond how they portray themselves on Instagram or Facebook. Wisdom is about understanding ourselves, others, life, and, and perhaps most importantly, where the world is going. Where is this all going? So that's, that's the nature of wisdom. And so the summons to the word summon, calls us and invites us to wisdom. And I think that's what Psalm, uh, Psalm 88 does this morning especially. If you, look, if you look at the text, if you have it in front of you, Psalm 88 has the longest title of any of the Psalms. Isn't that kind of interesting? And I want to highlight three things in it. Let me read it. The, the, the title says, A Song, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah, for the director of music, according to Mahalat Le'anot, a maskeel of Haman the Ezraite. That's quite a mouthful. And again, I want to just highlight three things in this title that I think are actually quite important. First, the phrase, for the director of music. This is a phrase that's found on a number of psalms. But what's interesting is that this psalm is, on the whole, it's arguably unique among all of the psalms. Because the, 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 the entire psalm is shot through with darkness, with despair. Most of the psalms present some sort of conflict, some sort of struggle. And here in Psalm 88, there is there is no resolve to that struggle. There's no ending to the conflict. There's no, there's no, if you will, happy ending to the psalm. It is shot through with darkness. In fact, the word darkness appears throughout the psalm, and it concludes the psalm. The psalm ends in darkness, as we'll see. And, and it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's quite interesting that a psalm like this would be written why? For the director of music to, act, to actually perform in front of God's people, to perform in, in, in for God's people, for their edification. Why in the world would a psalm that expresses no hope 
Why would, why would the author want this to go out? Why would he want this to be for the director of music? So that's the first comment. The second comment of the title is this term that's left, usually untranslated, lianote. Li- 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 note. Okay, you know, it can, it can mean, it's, it's, it's untranslated because we're not quite sure what it means, and so they wisely leave it untranslated. It could mean either or both of these things. It could mean for singing, as if as to say the psalm is for singing, or it could mean for affliction. For affliction. It can mean either one because the Hebrew roots for both of those words, singing and affliction, are the same. But it's an incredible thing that this is a psalm that is, in, in a sense, is for affliction, for distress. It's for despair. It's for hardship. It's for trouble. It's a psalm that is given for the director of music to share, to communicate with God's people when they are in struggle, when they are afflicted. And I think that we can, we can apply that in, in some meaningful way to our own time in the midst of this crisis. The third thing I want you to see is that this, this, uh, this psalm is called a maskil, a maskil. Okay, and, and we don't know exactly what that term means, but it has something to do with prudence or wisdom. Okay, or you could even call it skill or, or uh, ability, capacity. And, I, and I, I, my guess is here that it has to do not so much with skill as in playing an instrument, but again, in, in wisdom and skill in living life. Now, I think this psalm this morning is going to be incredibly important to you regardless of where you are, because of the present crisis. Let me ask you this question. When you encounter someone who's in overwhelming pain or they're experiencing overwhelming loss, what's your first temptation? Or what's your first response when you see someone who's truly suffering? Well, I don't know about you, but often my first response is to run, just to run. You see someone really hurting, and, and you panic. You think, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to help this person? And you, you often run away. You, you simply avoid at all costs the person. And you may feel guilty about that. You may feel sad about that. You may feel ashamed of that. But that's often our first inclination. I understand that, that some, sometimes when we go through suffering or afflictions, the one thing in addition to the pain that we don't expect is that everyone avoids us. See, listen to this. This is key, gang. Pain, whether it's physical or emotional, I think especially emotional, pain can leave us incredibly alone. No one, no one knows. Nobody, nobody knows what we're going through. In fact, we don't even know what we're going through sometimes. We just simply lack the words. But here's the thing. Psalm 88 gives us those words. It's an amazing thing. Psalm 88 is the cry of someone drowning in the deepest sorrow and loneliness. They're suffering, and they're suffering alone. Though they've been calling out to God, they remain alone, alone and alone. Though they're calling out to God, they they are waiting And they are waiting, and they're waiting. They're crushed by feelings of deep disapproval and distance from both God and man. So if this this has um, 
If this has not been you yet, if you read this song, you think, yeah, you really, honestly, I just can't relate to this. Well, you know what? Chances are one day it will be. The author of Ecclesiastes in chapter 11, verse 8, listen to this. The author of Ecclesiastes has such wisdom. He says this, if a person, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. And that's what this psalm is about. It is a psalm for the days of darkness. So let me read these words. Again, this is Psalm 88. Um, Hear now the word of the living God. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive. Literally, you have made me an abomination to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors, and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. The darkness, darkness has become my closest friend. You could translate, darkness has become my only friend. Oh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> Let me introduce you to a young woman who lived in the, 19th, in the 19th century England. Her name was Josephine Butler. She was born in 1828 in a middle-class English home, and she became the wife of an Anglican minister. She and her husband had three sons and a little girl named Eva. One night when she and her husband were arriving home from after an evening function, they were getting back into their home, and her, her, their, their children ran downstairs to greet their parents. And, and their, their youngest, little Eva, age five, somehow in ways that I'm not sure from the, from the account, somehow she fell over the banister onto the tile floor below. And a few hours later, died. 
Josephine Butler was overcome by grief. And the family moved from where they were living in Cheltenham to Liverpool. And utterly devastated, as you can imagine, utterly devastated by the loss of her little girl, Butler grasped for a way to cope. Some months later, she had a breakthrough. And she writes, let me read these words to you. They're just simply incredible. She says this. She says, I became possessed excuse me, I became possessed with an irresistible desire to go forth and find some pain keener than my own, to meet with people more unhappy than myself, for I knew there were thousands of such persons. She continues, my sole wish was to plunge into the heart of some human misery and to say, as I now knew I could, to afflicted people, I understand. I, too, have suffered. And she concludes, it was not hard to find such misery in Liverpool. Now recall once again our substance of the word. Remember how it says, get wisdom. Right, though it costs all you have, get understanding. Do you know where true wisdom is found? Do you know how you get real wisdom? Do you know how you come to a place where you really understand how the world works? Again, recall the title of the superscription of Psalm 88, a maskil, that is for gaining skill, prudence, or wisdom. Where is wisdom found? Ecclesiastes tells us. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 says this, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad or made better. Listen to this. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Where is wisdom found? Wisdom is found in the house of mourning. It's found in the place of sorrow. See, Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What what does he mean by that? Well, it has a lot to do with what he says right before. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying the path to true comfort, the path to true strength is always through weakness. It is through struggle. It is through mourning. It is through exposing ourselves either directly or through the experiences of others to what is difficult, what is overwhelming, what is truly painful, if you will. My father, uh, recently, I was complaining, my, to, complaining about some things in my life. I know this is some number of months ago, how hard life was. And he reviewed these, these uh, opening beatitudes of Jesus, and he said, you know, Bruce, really what Jesus is calling us to here, he says he's calling us to get in trouble. <laughs> that is to say, to be in trouble. He's calling us to actually enter into hardship, to enter into difficulty. And I'll explain why that is. Okay, let me, let me, let me clarify it a little bit. But this morning, Psalm 88 confronts us with someone who is poor in spirit. Someone who can see no way out of their sorrow, no way out of their despair, no way out of their loneliness. They're at the end of their rope. And here's the key. He is pouring out his heart in lament. And even, even in protest to God. We can see that other places in the Psalms. We see it in the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel. This notion of pouring out one's heart. Now listen, if, you, if we are hungering for authenticity, 
if we're longing for reality, if we're tired of the facade of, of, of just life and what's fake on Facebook and different places, you'll find it right here in Psalm 88. Some Christians may be fake, but the Bible is almost unbearably real. And the Christian life, if lived faithfully, is extremely real. I can remember a young woman who came to faith in her late 20s. She was married, had a, had a, a little boy. And she said this, she said, I remember my life before I became a Christian. It was so much easier, so much easier. And that's because as a Christian, you come to, you come to see life in a different way. You realize that to, to be faithful, that, that, that it is difficult. You, realize, you become aware of the hardships and the pain of life. As, as the Apostle Paul says, through many hardships, we must, we must enter into the kingdom of God. See, so, see, far too often, listen to this, this is, this is important. Far too often, you and I walk into a sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Actually, not right now, we're not doing that. But often we, we, we encounter other Christians and we see them, we see others, and they, they seem fine. Perhaps in our, our Zoom interactions, oh, they seem fine. They're dressed okay. They, we, we smile. We, we, um, we, uh, we ask, hi, how are you? And I'm fine. You know, and we conclude that they really are just fine. And yet, they're dying inside. They're dying inside. And here in Psalm 88, the psalmist voices unbearable pain, and then he drops the mic. See, there are people, there are people in our own congregation, and especially in this crisis, there are people in our communities. There are people whom you and I know well. There are persons here in our, in our congregation, who actually could pray this psalm? Let me ask you, do you know who they are? Do you? Do you know who they are? See, this is why small groups are so important. See, in a place of trust, on a Wednesday night, I can begin to feed you a little bit of the real me every week. And see what you can handle. I'm going to begin to share with you my fears, my, my failures, just a little bit to see how much reality you can really handle. And Psalm 88 is simply it's a small group person who's letting it all, it's venting. It's venting. And the question is are we listening? You know, sometimes we, we, we often approach small groups as consumers. Well, I don't really have a need for a small group right now. I'm too busy, or I don't have a lot, I've got other things going on. I don't really need this. But we don't, are, are we pro approaching small groups that way? Are we approaching them not as consumers, but as caregivers? Maybe you don't need the small group at this moment in your life, but you know what? Your other small group, or small group uh, members, they may need you. They may need you, and they're wondering, what will you stick around to actually trust and, and, and hear and listen? Can they trust you? And listen, gang, listen. The, the real world is unbearably hard. It is. If you are not overwhelmed by its harshness, by its brutality, by its injustice, by its relentlessness. If you're not struggling with despair, where are you? See, Psalm 88 awakens us to that. If we're not, if we're not grasping how unbearably difficult the world is, where are we? And the answer is, 
We're in a suburban bubble. Have you ever said that to someone else? Or said that about someone else? Yeah, you know, they're in a bubble. And maybe it may not be a suburban bubble. Maybe it's a work bubble. We just sort of absorb ourselves in work. Everything revolves around work. Oh, I got to work. Oh, it's all about work. And we're, we are ignorant of all the hardships going on around us. Or maybe it's a hobby. We're in a hobby bubble. And we're ignorant of all the pain and sorrow going around us. Or maybe it's a retirement bubble. We're in our retirement bubble and we're doing our thing. We've, we've earned our retirement. And now our goal is to, is to simply, in every way possible, to shelter ourselves from the hardships of, of, of others. See, Jesus has words for those who live in bubbles. He says this, Woe to you who are rich now. Woe to you who are well fed now. Well, woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all speak well of you now. That is, Jesus is saying, woe to you who live as if everything's okay. As if life's just fine. Because the psalmist, Psalm 80, is, is he's here to say, look, life is unbearably difficult. I don't know if you've had a chance just to talk to persons, maybe it's family members, co-workers, persons you know, when you go to share with them your hardships, and immediately you can tell they withdraw. They go back into their bubble. They politely just sort of withdraw emotionally, socially. They withdraw. I can remember a friend of mine some, some years ago telling me about how he was sharing his hardships with his mother. And some really difficult things. And his mom he said, he said, what's so difficult about my mom is that she always smiles. She always says, she always has this trite upbeat answer. She said, my mom can never be down. She can never actually meet me in that place of pain. She can never actually grieve with me. She, for her, life always has to be good. But Psalm 88 says, yeah, you know what? Sometimes life just makes no sense. Sometimes you just can't see any hope. Sometimes it feels like everybody has left you, including God. That's what real life is really like. And Psalm 88 wants us to know that. It's calling us out of our bubble. See, here's this gang, listen, this is key. It is in sorrow. It is in suffering. Especially when there is uncertainty that we find out. It is, it's, it's, it's in those times of uncertainty and, and struggle. Times like now in a present crisis. It's in times like this that we find out who we are really are. And that can be hard. It can be very hard. Think of the suffering I've gone through in my life, and I, I, when it's revealed who I really can be, impatient, cold, wanting nothing more than to flee into pleasure, to flee into just escapism. See, we're faced with this question in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of loneliness. We're faced with this question. Will I move towards cynicism? Will I move toward a despairing surrender? Or will I seek God? And the psalmist does the latter. He does it very humbly. There's no, there's no bells and whistles here in Psalm 88. When overwhelmed with suffering and sorrow, he cries out to God. He cries out four things. First, he says, I'm done. I'm done. Second, he says, everyone's gone. Everybody's gone. Then he says, what can be done? <laughs> what can be done? And the fourth, he says, I don't get it. 
That's it. And then he drops the mic. He's done. He says, I'm done. Everyone's gone. What can be done? And I don't get it. First, so verses 1 and 2, again, he's crying out to God. Lord, you are the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I don't know, for the last few weeks, on and off, I've been having us sing a children's song during the liturgy. It's called Jesus Strong and Kind. And the words are so wonderfully simple. A good children's song is like a good children's story. It's universal. It speaks not only to children, but to adults. The words are so good. Jesus said that if I thirst, Jesus said that if I am weak, Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. That's exactly what the psalmist does. It's exactly what he's doing in the midst of his pain every single day. He's simply going back to Jesus, if you will. Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. No one else can be my strength. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. That's what these first two verses do. He's saying, I cry out to you. I am coming to you day and night. And the first thing he says in verse 3 says, I'm done. I am so done. All is lost. I'm too far gone. It's the end of the line for me. Look at this, verse 3. I'm overwhelmed with troubles. My life draws near to death. Again, he says, I'm done. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. Everyone agrees that it's over for him. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who, you, who are cut off from your care. He says, I'm done. Verse 6, you have put me in the lowest pit. I can't get out of this. There's no getting out of this. You've put me in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. To summarize, he says, I can see no end to my defeat. I can see no end to my despair, and I can see no end to his displeasure. But then he goes on. He says, not only am I done, he says, everyone's gone. Look at verses 8 and 9. Everyone's left him. You have taken from me my closest friends. You have made me repulsive to them. I'm an abomination to them. I am confined, and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. And then he says, third is what can be done? Where can we actually go from here? In the second line in verse 12, he says, I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Then he says, do you show your wonders to the dead? No, it's too late. Once you're dead, you're dead. Do their spirits rise up and praise you? No. Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? He says, it's too late. What can possibly be done? He can't see a way out of his struggle. There are no more options. So first, he says, I'm done. Second, he says, Every, everyone's gone. Third, he asks, what can possibly be done? And then finally, he says, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Look at verse 13. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why? Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? I don't get it. Why have you done what you've done? He looks at his life, so much of it, and it makes no sense whatsoever. Why have you done what you've done? Why, the, why are you so distant? Again, verse 14, Why, O oh Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I'm, and I'm in despair. 
So he doesn't understand. He's saying, I just don't get it. I don't get your distance. I don't get your disapproval. Look at verse 16. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. I'm drowning in your disapproval. That's what it feels like. And then finally he says, I'm, uh, I, don't, I don't get why I don't get what you've done, what you've done with respect to just the darkness, the desolation. And that's how the psalm ends. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's it. I'm done. I'm just done. He says, I'm so done. Everyone's gone. What more can be done? And I don't get it. Why are you so distant? I don't understand your, why your distance. I don't understand your disapproval. I don't understand the darkness. You know, a psalm like this rings true to life, doesn't it? I don't know if you know this, but one of the most popular Google searches that contains the word God is, why does God hate me? Why does God hate me? Isn't that terrible? The one of the most common searches that Google has that includes the word God is, why does God hate me? People feel so distant. They, they, can, they can see us over the words of a psalm like this, and they can say, yes, I am done. Everyone is gone. They can say, I don't, I just don't understand. I, what in the world can possibly be done? And yet, you know, it's in these, it's in these psalms where we begin to see the, the need for waiting the struggle of loneliness, that God actually is at work. There are these glimmers of hope through the psalm, uh, just simply of calling out to God, longing for his faithfulness. It's amazing to see how God takes persons who go through hardship and suffering like the psalmist and uses them for his glory. You know, the psalm is written by a guy named Haman, a guy named Haman, and in this, in this, um, in this amazing, uh, uh, again, the longest the title of any psalm, is a masculine of Haman the Ezraite. And Haman, of course, was appointed by David to oversee aspects of the temple worship. He was an incredibly gifted poet a gifted musician. And I, I, and I know that we, we all kind of know this instinctively, that often it's the incredibly gifted, the incredibly insightful people in life who are often the most troubled persons as well. You see that sometimes in, in Hollywood. You'll see um, various actors or musicians who are incredibly gifted and yet whose lives are incredibly difficult. And that's often true, the more gifted. And here's this, this man, Haman, who we read in First, First Chronicles uh, chapter 25, that Haman is, listen to this, he's called, quote, the king's seer. Isn't that beautiful? It's a wonderful way of referring to this man as David's counselor, as David's confidant, as one who, in a sense, was David's eyes. See, the thing is, when you go through suffering, when you have been through unrelenting struggle and pain, you have a voice. You have a right to speak. You have an insight and a wisdom into life that, that, that just so many do not have. And it's so beautiful. It's so amazing how God is so able to use the hardships of life 
to make us into beautiful, beautiful people. Listen to it. Listen to this. Think about the saints of old. See, most all saints go through periods. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. This is the bottom line I want you to hear this morning. Most all saints, most all the children of God, go through periods in their lives when, where absolutely nothing makes sense. Some far less, some far more. But the, answer, but the idea is this, as you comb through the scriptures, think of Abraham. How long was it till he had a child? And then he was called to sacrifice it? Like, really? Think about Joseph. How much more could have gone wrong in Joseph's life? Think about Moses, the murder, the flight, the mission impossible of delivering God's people. Think of David. Yeah, David, you're going to be king next, um, but now you're going to have to flee for your life. Think of Daniel being faithful in exile. Think of the prophets, where, where God basically says to them, call everyone to repent and know this, that none of them are going to listen and they're going to hate you. Think of, think of Job. Right, let, let me, let, this is God says, let me take your perfect life and I'm going to completely destroy it for you. Think of the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 of all of these saints who have gone before us and so rarely, so rarely did, did they escape long periods of struggle, long periods of not understanding. Of course, climatically, there's the person of Jesus. I mean, what, what actually went right for this guy? What was easy about Jesus' life? What made sense about Jesus' life? I mean, the very beginning of his ministry, a voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And you think, wow, this is going to be amazing. And from there on out, everything seems to go south. Everything seems to go wrong. Everyone's attacking him. Everyone's abandoning him. All, even his own followers, the crowds, they all, none of them seem to get it. Jesus shows up as the answer, and everyone treats him as if he were the problem. And yet, as we look at their lives, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, the prophets, Job, and of course Jesus, do we not marvel are they not extraordinary lives? See, it's out of that suffering that God shapes and, and, and works in us and, and makes us into someone remarkable, someone extraordinary whom he can use incredibly. At the very beginning, I mentioned Josephine Butler. Let me conclude with her, with her story. As she went out to find those who had suffered more immensely than she had, it was the case that in, the, in her time, in the Victorian England of her time in the 1860s, prostitution was pretty much everywhere. In fact, some estimates, this is, this is astonishing, some estimates say that there was a prostitute for every six to seven men in England. In fact, there were more prostitutes than there were servants. The degradation, listen to this, the degradation and disease experienced by these women was horrific. As Butler began to interact with these women, she saw them not as sinners, but as fellow sufferers. And when such women became sick with such debilitating diseases like tuberculosis, they would be thrown out of their own brothels with absolutely nowhere, I mean nowhere to go. And Josephine Butler would take them in to her home. They would die with the dignity. 
They would die with dignity in a home, with a friend at their side, having heard and felt the good news of Jesus. For others, she was able to nurse them back to health. And she would use her social connections to find them jobs. Where, where, would, the, where would someone like that find a job? Well, in the new world. And in fact, her kindness to these women opened her eyes to the horrific dark side of Victorian England. And it moved her to spend the rest of her life opening up houses of rest across industrial Britain for exploited and oppressed women, campaigning for women's rights, for more work opportunities for women, and for repealing, the repealing of some of the deeply sexist, I mean incredibly sexist legislation that, that had been passed to curb the spread of the diseases. And I, it's just remarkable to me how this woman will often, when some of these women who did survive, she would often use her connections actually in the new world. It's an amazing way. She would take these women, and, and they would, of course, their past, quote unquote, their past would not be known in the new world. And she would buy them a ticket, give, and use the social connections she had across um, across the Atlantic in in the, in the colonies, or I'm sorry, in, in America, to um, to help them start over in a beautiful way. And let me just conclude with this: if you, if Psalm 88 describes you, if it describes your life, the suffering, the loneliness, let me just have you consider. You need to ask yourself these questions. Will I wait upon the Lord? Will I? Another question that you need to ask yourself. What am I sure of? See, it's in suffering that we discover what we're really sure of, what we doubt and what we don't. What am I sure of? Next question to ask, to consider, is what meaning does sorrow and grief have without God? See, the Psalm 88 calls us to ask the question, will I live in the midst of struggle and sorrow and loneliness, relying on distant hopes? Will I do that? Will I live like the Israelite slaves who died in Egypt before Israel was rescued? Will I live like the generation before Zechariah and Elizabeth who waited in silence with no prophetic voice? Will we live waiting? And the second question, that, or another major um, question that the Psalm 88 confronts us with is this. There are persons, especially in this crisis, and I think it's only going to get worse in the months to come, there are persons in this crisis who are going to be hurting alone. They will be living the Psalm 88 experience, whether they know it or not. And the question is this, will we draw near to them? Will we crawl under the rock with them? Will we lose control and wade into the flood with them? Will we hope for them? pastor friend of mine tells a story of a wife, a woman who was abandoned by her husband. One, morning she, one, one day she came home, there was, all there was was a card, the closet, all the, all the things he'd taken, everything he'd left. And on the card it said these simple words, I'm so done with you, I found someone else who's way better. She called up, uh, she called up this pastor friend, and, uh, and, uh, and as the pastor listened, he listened, he prayed with her, and he said this, I want you to know, he said, you will stand. 
You will stand. I don't know how, what it's going to look like, when it will be, but you will stand. And then months went by. In fact, six or seven months went by, and he received a phone call. A phone call from out of the blue, and he said, hello? And he heard these immediate words. She, this woman said, I'm standing. <laughs> I'm standing. Will we actually be there to hope for others? To say, you know what? You will stand, and I'm here. I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. Will we be with people? Will we sit with them in the darkness? And of course, we're not, we are not alone in the darkness. There is one who has gone before us into that darkness. There's one who's gone before us utterly and truly, fully abandoned, not only by men, but by God himself. One who was absolutely forsaken and yet who waited upon the Lord. Who believed his God was faithful. Let me conclude with a quote from Screwtape Letters. Many of you know C.S. Lewis in his, his wonderful book, it's a, it's, a, it's a list of, uh, it's a series of letters written from a, a senior demon to a junior demon. And this is one line where the, where the, the junior demon, his name is Wormwood, and, and the, the senior demon writes these words. Listen to this, because it's a wonderful description of Jesus our Lord. He says, Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause, that is the cause of darkness, the cause of the evil one, our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Again, Psalm 88, that is the place where he is. That's the place where we can be. That's the place where we will be. And Psalm 88 calls us to cry out to God, to not lose contact, to know that other saints whom God has used in mighty ways have gone before us into that darkness. Psalm 88 reveals that we indeed are not alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just rejoice in your kindness your goodness. Father, we rejoice in the Psalms that equip us with words to say, that, that equip us with a perspective that says, yes, you will encounter such suffering, such loneliness, such darkness. To know, Father, that we have not somehow wandered off the map of the experience of, of Christianity, but in fact, we are deeply, deeply in the midst of that hall of faith of those who've gone before us into loneliness into pain, and to know supremely that our great pioneer, our Lord Jesus Christ, has gone before us to be truly overcome by the darkness, to be truly overcome by your wrath, and yet to rise, to rise in resurrection glory, resurrection power, to be installed at your right hand to rule forever, where you are making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Oh, Father, would you equip us Free us from a fear. Enable us to walk together in the darkness. Enable us to sing songs in the night. Father, enable us truly to, to lean upon you, to be able to say as Jesus did on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. For we pray in his name, amen.